I honestly believe that you have a mental health issue. Now, whether it's psychological or whether there's physical problem, I'm not sure, but I'm really concerned for you. So I'm saying that genuinely. I, this is what I do for a living. We try to resolve situations like this. If it is a case that you've done this and it was just a spur of the moment reaction, just to hear me out, hear me out, and for whatever reason something's gone wrong, whether it was an accident or whether it was just, just brain snap for a moment, we can resolve this. I don't see this as, if you're involved in it, going to jail. I see this as a possibility that we get you the treatment that you need and we put to bed this case for the parents. The parents are grieving. The parents need to find out what's ha happened to, to William. That was former Detective Chief Inspector Gary Jubelin interrogating former person of interest Paul Savage over the disappearance of William Tyrrell. That interview was recorded at Mr Savage's home in May 2018 and is one of a number of recordings made by Mr Jubelin that are now the subject of criminal proceedings. After more than 30 years on the police force, Gary Jubilum was used to arresting and charging offenders, and now he is on the stand, accused of illegally recording conversations with Mr Savage, alleged offences that have derailed his career and exposed deep divisions within the New South Wales police force. And five years on, William's case still remains unsolved. The police force wanted Mr Jubilant's case in court held behind closed doors, but that was dismissed. Mr Jubilant has this month taken to the stand to fight the charges, revealing for the first time what he believes may have happened to the three-year-old that morning in September 2014. And as police come under fire yet again over the investigation, authorities have over the past few days returned to Kendall in northern New South Wales to search local bushland. In this episode, we'll hear more about explosive new information about former person of interest Paul Savage, the details about the secret investigation to catch those responsible and the shock comment allegedly made by one senior police officer saying, no one cares about that little boy. I'm Natasha Belling. And I'm Leah Harris. This is Where's William Tyrrell? Leah, you've been in court for the last couple of weeks as Mr Jubilant is fighting these charges. Tell us what these charges actually are. So he's been charged with illegally recording four conversations with Mr Savage over quite a lengthy period. One of those conversations was a phone conversation he had with Mr Savage while he was at Homicide Headquarters in Parramatta and Mr Savage was at his house. And in that case, he asked a junior officer to record the conversation on his mobile phone. He put the phone on loudspeaker and had him record that. And then there were three additional conversations that were recorded on Mr Jubilant's mobile phone while he was speaking to Savage in person. 
Savage told police he was not aware on any of these occasions he was being recorded and the prosecution's case is that these recordings were not covered by a warrant and were therefore unlawful. Now, in court this week, we actually heard Mr Jubilant say, quote, and I'm quoting here, certain members of the strike force did not have a particular loyalty to me. He continues saying, if Mr Savage was to self-harm and I'm sitting before a coronial inquest into his death, I had no confidence that the junior police would have backed me up. I felt to a certain degree isolated. So he's alleging he had to record these conversations to protect himself. Yes, that's right. So Jubilant's defence team argued that he recorded these conversations to protect his lawful interests because he feared that Savage would either make false complaints against him or may even harm himself and that he would later be criticised for his conduct during those conversations and those visits. So their job was to prove that he had lawful interests to protect because that is a defence under the Act. He told the court that he had no confidence that his team would back him up if there were complaints made because he didn't believe they were loyal. His team also claimed the recordings didn't violate Savage's privacy any more than it already had been violated because he was already the subject of warrants granted by the Supreme Court to have his house, car and phone bugged. So he was already being listened to by the police. But the prosecution argued a different case in court. The prosecution argued that that lawful interests protection defence doesn't apply to a police officer investigating a crime. They told the court that would mean there would be no need for any police officer to ever get a warrant before using their phone to covertly record a conversation if that defence was available to police officers. So they argued these recordings clearly weren't covered by a warrant and Jubilin knew that they weren't lawful. They told the court the only circumstances where an officer can record without a warrant includes if they are under threat of serious physical violence, which they argued that he was not. They also told the court there was not a shred of evidence supporting any assertion that Savage was involved in William's disappearance and they called it an improper inquisition of a vulnerable old man. It's important to note that Mr Savage is no longer a person of interest in the ongoing investigation into William's disappearance and has always maintained his innocence. That's right. So the court heard this week from a previous member of the strike force that Savage is no longer considered an active person of interest for the current team investigating William's disappearance. There was also a bid by the New South Wales Police Force to keep these charges in this case against Mr Jubilant's secret. Why? The New South Wales Police Commissioner's legal team tried very hard to prevent us from being able to report any of this. In fact, if they had their way, we wouldn't have been able to sit in court and hear any of this, all the things that we are about to reveal on the podcast. They tried to keep the majority of the evidence secret and have it heard in a closed court. And if they had been successful, we probably wouldn't be sitting here saying all the things that we are now able to say. They did that on the basis that they claimed it would reveal police methodology. Now, the magistrate decided the public were already well aware of much of these strategies including phone tapping and putting bugs in houses and that kind of thing. So he rejected their application. And as a result, this has been, I think it's safe to say, an unflattering case for the police force. It's exposed infighting and internal politics. And there has been some allegations made against senior police that they certainly did not want made public. In court, we heard extensive new information from Mr Jubilant about former person of interest Paul Savage. Tell us about Mr Savage. 
as we mentioned previously, Savage lived across the road from William's foster grandmother and he was in the area at the time William disappeared. He claimed that after William went missing, he searched in the bush and then got lost before coming home and having a cup of tea. Jubilant's hearing, the criminal hearing that we've been at for the past couple of weeks, became less about what Jubilant had done and whether or not he had broken the law And it became more about whether or not he had good reason to consider Savage a person of interest. And the court was shown Savage's recorded police interview where he was interrogated by Jubilin, as well as several recorded conversations between the two over the phone and in person, some of which were the subject of the criminal hearing. And that gave us an unprecedented insight that we didn't hear at the inquest and haven't heard before into exactly why Savage was a person of interest and what police did to try and find out whether or not he was involved. And this is where the interesting development about the local post office worker is a crucial piece in the puzzle. Tell us about that. So we've talked extensively about the postal worker and Savage's alleged stalking of her in previous episodes and there was a lot of talk about this in court and about how it was relevant to the William Tyrrell investigation. So the court heard that Savage first came to Jubilant's attention in mid-2017 partly because they looked into his criminal history and found the AVO that was taken out by the local postwoman, which we've discussed in previous episodes. And the court heard that Savage had been stalking her because he was obsessed and infatuated with her and Jubilant claimed he was seen by witnesses on several occasions crying and shaking at the post office while asking to see this woman saying that they should be together. Now they did name her in court but we've chosen not to because it's important to protect her privacy. Although Savage admitted to breaching the AVO and was convicted of doing that, he continuously denied stalking her and Jubilant said the fact he couldn't admit to the stalking, the court heard, Despite the evidence, it caused him concern about what else he might have been lying about. Here is a snippet of the police interview where Jubilant questions him about it, and we have beeped out her name again to protect her privacy. Okay, I've given you an opportunity to tell me exactly what's gone on with You're saying nothing. it's a hot... Nothing. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll just read some, read some things out here. And you wanted time and dates and, and that type of thing. So on the 21st of September 2012 delivered mail to Savage's mailbox and continued on the mail route. Sometime later, a considerable distance from Savage's address, realised he had followed her to Heron's Creek. She was stopped near the entrance to number 40 and Savage approached her and said, I couldn't let you leave the country without seeing you. Your oh, husband bullshit. is a lucky man. Sorry. That's rubbish. I miss you. Reports that the POI was crying and shaking as he said this. Yeah, and I was flying over the bloody moon at the same time. So this is just just all made up? That is. Just all made up? Yes. On the 20th of October 2012, Savage approached the vehicle and took hold of her arm, stating, I want to spend more time with you. We don't get enough time together. Savage was crying and shaking as he was saying this. Crap. Another thing that's just made up. It is. It is made up. Look, Mr Savage. What? I think we need to take a step back. Clearly. Now, hear hear me out, clearly. I'm not sitting here in judgement of you. But what I can't sit here and is take lies. Okay? Okay, then throw that in the bin because that's a pack of rubbish. It's not a pack of rubbish. It is a pack of rubbish. 
I don't know what's caused this or what, whether it was a mental health issue or there's problems there, but clearly something is not right. It's something a load of rubbish. Yeah. Well, you ask her. I have asked her. Okay, then you ask her, why did you ring me in July, three months after I got the ADL on me, why did you ring me and tell me she loved me and I still haven't spoken to her? Now I know you're lying. No, you don't. You check the phone calls because that is the truth. She loves you. That's what she said. So you're telling you're telling me. Let, let's get. That's this, what let, she let, told let, me get, on the phone. Let's get this clear. Yeah. You're telling me that this wasn't you stalking her. She no. was in love with you. I didn't stalk her. But she's in love with you. She might have been. Do you think this could be slightly delusional? So much new information has been revealed in this court case, Leah, and we've also heard for the very first time that Mr Savage had been asked to stay away from William's foster grandmother's house. Why? The court heard that it was actually Savage's wife, Heather, when she was alive, who asked him to stay away from William's foster grandmother house because she had told her that he was making her uncomfortable. And the court heard that was because he was standing in her yard looking at her while she was in her house. In that same interview with Savage, Jubilant questions him about this. We've also beeped out the name of William's foster grandmother for legal reasons in this recording. Did you um, make a pest of yourself around... Just come on, give me a break. Why would I make a pest of myself? I went up and I asked her if she wanted a hand or anything. Let me know if you need a hand. Mm -hmm. And that's it. And uh, Heather never asked you to stay away from her because you're making her feel uncomfortable because you would come up there and stand at the back door? Oh, oh, oh so is lying now. So is lying, and now is just making this up. Well, if, if that's it, I used to go up there, I would see and I'd ask her, did she want a hand? That's I was worried about and, her. And Heather didn't re- relay to you that asked her to tell you to stay away because you're making her feel uncomfortable? That's, yeah, she, yeah. All right, yes, so, yes, so, remember. Yeah, yeah. so, so, taking it back, three yeah, minutes, taking ask. it back five minutes. So someone has asked you to stay away from the house. Yeah. And I, you're in I, here and we're interviewing you about the abduction of William Tyrrell and it was, in fact, the grandmother of William Tyrrell, the house where he disappeared from, that person had asked you to stay away from the house. That just happened after and passed and because I was going up there thinking I was doing the right thing. I wanted to know if she's all right. So when, when when you told me when you told me that no one's ever asked you to stay away, yeah, well, I forgot it, all about it. Oh, you just forgot. Well, I, I would. I didn't take any offence. And I are still friends. We still talk. I never I never gave it a second thought. We also heard in court, Leah, that another area of concern for Mr Jubilant with Mr Savage was the fact that Mr Savage did not have an alibi for a number of hours after William went missing. Yeah, so as we've previously discussed, um, there were two hours after William disappeared where Mr Savage was not accounted for, he wasn't seen by anyone. He claimed to have been searching for William, got lost in the bush and then came home for a cup of tea. In that recorded police interview, which we've already heard some snippets of in 2017, now that went for five hours, so we are just hearing small portions of it, Jubilant put some of his theories to him about what he thought may have happened to William. And the court heard that one of those was that perhaps he or his wife, Heather, may have accidentally killed William and covered it up. Another theory the court heard Jubilant put to him was that perhaps William was accidentally run over by Savage's wife, who was on her way to bingo, and then Savage helped her cover that up. 
He also suggested that perhaps William might have drowned in Savage's pool, which he had in his yard at the time. The court heard that another factor Jubilant had based some of these theories on was that perhaps Savage had been waiting for the postwoman to arrive on the morning that William disappeared. The postwoman delivered the mail around 10 or 10.30 each morning, which is the time that William disappeared on September 12, 2014. And the court heard on that particular morning, she had delivered the mail earlier than she normally did. But when she did that, Savage was on his bushwalk, so he wouldn't necessarily have been aware that she had already delivered the mail that morning. This is a portion of the interview where Jubilin puts some of these theories to him and he denies all of them. I don't accept what you're saying because I know for a fact it's a lie. So you don't because I'm telling you the bloody truth. Like you told us the truth about As I say, that was a bloody load of so rubbish. So what, what, what part of the William Tyrrell matter do I consider you're telling the truth or you're telling lies? I'm not interested in lying about anything. Why would I be? You tell me why. I, okay, all right, you've asked, so reasonable. Okay, you're covering up for Heather because there was an accident? No. <laughs> Heather went straight to bingo, to my knowledge. I, I, she left. You would do anything for Heather? There's no way in the world she had anything to do with accident, accident, accidents, accidents. If she Cover had, up. if she had a hit him or something like that, she would have been screaming the roof down. She'd never have got over it. You didn't know my wife. She was someone special. Believe me. She would no way in the world she would have left that little kid. What if he was already dead? Well she, well, she would have screened the roof down about that too. Well, why, why your actions just don't make sense? They don't make sense. In all the things that are going on, it doesn't make sense. It, what if it wasn't Heather? What if it's you? This is the first time we've heard about this theory also in court that Mr Jubilin had that William possibly could have been run over. The court heard that one of the main theories Jubilin had was that Savage may have moved his car that morning and that perhaps William might have run towards his car thinking it was his foster father's and Savage had accidentally run him over. The court heard this theory was based on the fact that Savage drove a grey four-wheel drive and William's foster father also drove a grey four-wheel drive. They looked similar and the court heard Jubilin say that a three-year-old kid wouldn't necessarily be able to tell the difference between the two. The court also heard there were witness statements taken from another neighbour that they heard a vehicle on a gravel driveway which sounded like a four-wheel drive and it was noted in court that Savage's driveway had gravel or small stones. It also heard that William's sister had said on two separate occasions when she was interviewed that William had gone looking for Daddy because he knew he was coming home shortly and that his foster mum had told police he would only run off if he saw his dad's car. Savage rejected all of these theories in his police interview and he continues to deny having any involvement in William's disappearance or any knowledge of what happened to him. We've taken out the names of William's foster family again in this recording. When you were sitting out there listening to them play, the area that William... direction that was William was last seen, heading, was the direction right towards where you were, sitting on the balcony having your toast or, or whatever, someone's taken him. Would you agree on that? Oh, yeah. Well, okay. they must have. He couldn't have. I can't say how he could have got away. Now, you're out there. No one else heard anything. There was no one else there. What do you think is happening? 
the only people around there I, from what I know is his mother, his father, and his father was out at the time. Oh, well, yeah, I don't know. So, and you? Yeah. Yeah. And I, well, I don't know if anybody else. And Heather, we, we, and Heather. Now, I, I'm saying if if Heather's had something to do with it for whatever reason. There's no way in the world either one of us would hurt the child or any other bloody child. As part of the ongoing investigation, Mr Jubilin and the police force had numerous devices recording Mr Savage in both his house and his car during 2017. And those recordings picked up some, what some may say, very bizarre behaviour from Mr Savage. The court heard that Savage had a habit of talking to himself a lot while he was alone, mostly in his house, sometimes in his car. On one of those occasions, it was captured on the listening device in his car straight after that interview with Jubilant that we've just heard snippets of. On that recording, on the listening device that was placed in his vehicle, he was captured saying, make sure you don't tell anyone, love. They're right after me. Don't tell anyone, love. Please, they're right after me. Sorry. And the court heard Jubilant believed this could have been in reference to the interview about William that he had just participated in. Who is he talking to? The court heard that he may have been speaking to his wife, Heather, who had passed away a couple of years earlier, which is something that he did quite regularly. It was captured on listening devices that the court heard he regularly did talk to Heather after she passed away. Was that audio played in court or did Mr Jubilant allege that's what he said? The recording does exist and it was referred to several times in court, but we didn't actually hear that recording. It was also alleged in court that Mr Savage was heard talking to somebody else. Tell us about that. The court heard that, as I said, Savage used to regularly talk to himself while he was home alone. And one officer who testified at Jubilant's hearing was tasked with listening to him and said that that talking to himself was almost constant in his words. The court heard that on one of those occasions when he was home alone in his house, he was heard talking to someone he described as a little boy. And this is what the surveillance teams reported him saying. I'm going to run into your property too in Gordon. This is my place. You do what I want. I'm not interested in your bullshit, mate. You're a little boy. You're nobody. You're just a little boy. You're nobody. You do not tell me. I tell you. No way in the world. Now, there was a dispute as to whether or not he said Gordon because the listening devices often didn't pick up things very clearly, so they couldn't be sure that that is what he said. However, the court heard that Gordon is the suburb where William's foster grandmother used to get off the train when she visited her foster grandchildren and her daughter in Sydney. What was it like being in court when you heard all this new evidence? It was quite a shock, actually, because I've covered this case for over five years and I hadn't heard that before. So it was surprising to hear it and very interesting in the context. And as we spoke about earlier, this is the first time, from what I understand, that the theory about William possibly being run over was raised and heard in court. Yeah, and this is also the first time that we have really heard Jubilant's account of what he believed might have happened and why he was treating Savage as a person of interest. Because he was not allowed to testify in the first part of the inquest, which wound up last year. That's right. 
For the first time, the court also heard how Mr Jubilant had organised for a Spider-Man suit to be planted as part of the ongoing investigation. Now, a number of police officers also told the court they did not agree with Mr Jubilant's line of inquiries in pursuing Paul Savage and believed Mr Savage was actually innocent. The court heard that Jubilant came up with an idea in 2017 supported by the psychologist that he was working with called the Spider-Man suit operation, which was to plant a weathered replica Spider-Man suit. And when I say weathered, I mean they actually planted this replica suit out in the bush for some period of time to make it look like it had been sitting there for a long time. They then planted it along the bush track where Savage allegedly walked every day. They had covert surveillance officers stationed in the bush watching him for his reaction. The court heard that Jubilin was using it to try and gauge a reaction and determine whether he should continue deploying resources to investigate Savage depending on how he reacted when he saw it. He even suggested in one of the videos shown to the court that if he was guilty, it may have even prompted him to lead police to where William's body was buried. So the court heard the surveillance team saw him stop near that suit on the first day by their assessment and they believed that he had seen it, looked at it for 12 seconds and then kept walking. It wasn't until the next day when he walked past it a second time that he went home and called the police to report it. However, that assertion that he saw it on the first day is disputed by some of the junior members of the strike team. A couple of the officers the court heard believed that it was possible he didn't see it that day and had paused for some other reason. However, Jubilant confronts him about it in his police interview. What I'm telling you, and this is before the camera, being recorded, what I'm telling you, I know you saw the suit the day before and what I'm interested in is why you're lying about that. Tell us why you're lying about that. I'm telling you what happened was I seen that suit and I went straight home and I rang up. I rang the police straight you saw away. It, you saw it the day before. I did not see it the day before. Leah, the significant part of this Spider-Man suit that police planted as part of the ongoing investigation is the fact that the suit they planted was actually different from the one that William was wearing on the day he disappeared. Jubilant confronted Savage again about seeing it and not reporting it when he visited his house at a later date. That conversation was captured on his mobile phone and is again one of the recordings that is subject to the criminal charges against him. So Savage denies having seen it, but he later calls Jubilant, and this is picked up on a legal phone tap, to say that he'd thought about it and realised he had seen the white part on the top on the first day, but didn't know what it was until he saw the suit again the next day. The court also heard he was overheard talking to his daughter about it in his house, saying that he saw the white bit with the spider the day before he reported it. Now, the significance of this, the court then heard, is that the Spider-Man suit planted on the bush track by police did not have any white on it. It was only red and blue. But the suit William was actually wearing when he disappeared, and this was not known to the public at the time, it was never reported actually before this came out in court, that had a white part on the back. Specifically, it had a white spider on the upper back part of the suit, which is not visible in the photo of him widely circulated of him wearing that Spider-Man suit minutes before he disappeared. Leah, the suit was planted in 2017, some three years after William disappeared. What is the significance in the investigation about the difference with the white part of the suit? 
So it's hard to say how significant this is or if it's significant at all. It's hard to say what Savage meant when he said he saw the white part or the white top. But the court later heard that Jubilant believed that indicated Savage may have had knowledge of what the suit William was wearing looked like and may have accidentally revealed that knowledge. Here he is putting that to Savage in his house on this recording. Actually see it the day before. So we know you lied about that. I put the suit there to see how people would react and to see if they react suspiciously. You could not have reacted any more suspiciously. You have described a suit that William was wearing at the time of his abduction, not the suit that we left well, there. You know, no, that, that causes no, me a concern. Uh, 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 uh. Like, no, don't uh, 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 me, because we've got it all recorded. How can you say I'm describing the suit William was wearing when I wouldn't have a clue what it was wearing, firstly, and I said I seen a white top? So, Leah, with these new allegations revealed in court about what Mr Jubilant believes may have happened to William, there are now a number of theories that he was abducted by a stranger, that he was possibly run over by a car, that he may have drowned in Mr Savage's pool. Yet, as we know, no one saw anything the morning that William disappeared. Is it possible that no one saw anything? With all these theories, the interesting and frustrating thing about this case is that none of them make any sense in the context of there being absolutely no witnesses. No one saw anything, no one heard anything. So with each of these theories, you would think that someone would have seen and heard something, but as far as we know, they didn't. So nothing really makes sense. Savage continues to deny having any involvement in William's disappearance or any knowledge of what happened to him. Mr Jubilant alleged in court that he had serious concerns for the mental well-being of Mr Savage. The court heard that eventually, in one of the last conversations Jubilant had with Savage, he spoke to him about the possibility that he had some serious mental health issues and perhaps that's what led him to causing William's death. He talks about the delusional attitude towards the postwoman and Savage obviously denies this. The court also heard both in his interview and in the recordings at his house, Jubilant referred to Savage's childhood. We didn't hear in court exactly what he was referring to, but he mentions it in the recording taken at his house. Something's happened, and I'm not, I'm not sitting here in judgment of you, Paul. I said this to you when I interviewed you. Some of the things you told me about your childhood, it shocked me, and I'm a hardened homicide detective. I've been doing this for 25 years, and it, it, it shocked me. I don't know, and you just gave me a snippet of it, but it rattled me, and I've seen a lot of things in the interview room, but that rattled me, whatever has happened to you when you were a young, young fella. And these things have come back. They come back and they can haunt you and you can react certain ways. The reaction with about yelling at me and saying you didn't do it, just hear, hear me out. That, it, it's not normal, but it's not something something evil or sinister. It's just someone that possibly needs, needs some help. So that's what I'm, I'm here saying, and that's why I went to your family. I don't go to um, bad guys' families and speak to the families and go, look, we think we've got a problem. When they see me, I come in the front door and uh, arrest them and handcuff them and drag them out. I'm not treating this one that way. This is a unique situation. Something's terrible's happened. A three-year-old child's disappeared. And we can get to the bottom of it without any pain, without any shame. We can get to the bottom of it and find out what's, what's happened. You're in the area at the time of his disappearance. We can work together on this and get to the bottom of it.
it doesn't have to be confrontation, it doesn't have to be arguments, it, it can, we can work through this and work, work it out. Phase two of the investigation moved on from the fact that Mr Jubilant admits he never had enough evidence to convict Mr Savage, and it's important to note yet again that Mr Savage denies any wrongdoing at all, that then he was looking at what they referred to as a Section 61 certificate that Mr Jubilant had used previously. So the court heard that there were two phases of the investigation, particularly when it came to Mr Savage. And in phase two, he and senior police, who he was consulting with, agreed they would no longer prioritise finding evidence with the view of prosecuting someone for what happened to William, but to simply find out what happened to him. According to an investigation plan, which was written by Jubilant and was tendered to the court, part of that strategy going forward with Savage was to use the coronial inquest in a similar way he'd used it before to find missing people. That's something called a Section 61 certificate, which can be granted by a coroner to protect a witness from self-incriminating evidence, but not from perjury. So that means they can say something on the stand that might be an admission to a crime, but they cannot lie on the stand. Given that he's now been removed from the case, it's not known whether this strategy has or may still be used by the coroner. But Jubilin has previously used this strategy in the Matt Levison case, which we have mentioned in previous episodes. Matt Levison had been missing for a decade before the man accused of killing him was given this option by Jubilin, and he led them to Matthew's remains, finally after 10 years. His parents, Mark and Faye Levison, are forever grateful to him for what they call bringing Matty back, and they were also in court almost every day during Jubilin's hearing to support him. Jubilant alludes to that strategy when he spoke to Savage in his house on this recording. I, and Mark and Faye Levison have, yeah, it's turned their life around. And this is, I feel a sense of responsibility with uh, William's parents, his foster parents, because they're more his family than the, the bio, biological in the way that uh, they're raising him. That's the type of relief they, they need. Now, no one went to jail on it. No one, yeah, there was a bit of pain and a bit of angst, but no one, uh, no one got punished because it's one of those things like it's an accident and someone made a mistake at the time and the courts have now set the precedent that, OK, we've got the body back, we've found out what's happened, and that, to me, is a way... No foul, foul play. Now, with this little guy, yeah, an accident, yeah, I, I can understand. If it is a case that... It was an accident, hit by the car or whatever. I could understand how I would panic. I think anyone would panic. I think if we're all honest, we, we, we would panic. So what I want you to just think about, just think about what I'm saying. Now, when I walk out the door, you might call me a dickhead and go, what a, no, what a no, wanker. No, no, I know what you're trying to do. I, I, I just want you to process it through, process it through, because... This is not a job we give up on. We can't give up on it. It's no, no, a, I it's a, it's, yeah, Madeleine McCain over in Europe, William Tyrrell over here. Yeah, these are the, these are the jobs that just don't don't go away. We will continue on and continue on. Yeah, all, all the things are pointing to your involvement in it, and knowledge of it. Yeah, I know so what, what? Have a think. I want you to think about it. It's an unusual approach that we take going to speak to your family, but it was done genuinely. We're doing it trying to get to the bottom of it without paying 
any more pain for anyone. Yeah, and if it's, a, if it's some deep sorrow that you're hanging on to, it can be resolved. It always can be resolved. No matter how big a problem you think you're in, it can be resolved. And what I do know, what I do know having done homicide for over a quarter of a century, is that when people, whether it is uh, an accident or that, when they get it off their conscience, the world is a better place because it's a horrible thing to hang on to and I've seen it time and time again. It's interesting to note, Leah, that the prosecution argued Savage's well-being or mental well-being was actually critical in the fact that Mr Jubilant was facing these charges. The prosecution argued in court that Savage was vulnerable, that he was a vulnerable person because of these perceived mental health issues and his age and grilled Jubilant on the stand about what they described as improper questioning of Savage. Again, it is important to note Savage has always denied any involvement in William's disappearance and he has never been charged with this crime. In fact, as we mentioned, the court heard he's no longer an active person of interest. Authorities had wanted to keep Mr Jubilant's court case kept behind closed doors because they alleged that they didn't want police proceedings or investigations exposed to the public as they continued investigating William Tyrrell's disappearance. But what this court case has certainly exposed, which I know William's foster parents were always concerned about, is the allegations that politics within the police force and mismanagement had actually derailed the investigation. So to put it into context in terms of the New South Wales police and their involvement in this case, the police commissioner had a legal team that sat in on this hearing the entire time. And part of their job was to object to certain parts of the testimony and the evidence and apply to keep that from being heard in the public arena. And they did this several times, as we've heard before. In fact, they wanted the whole hearing to be kept from the public. And there was a certain piece of testimony that they objected to having heard in the public arena, which was about former homicide commander Scott Cook. He was mentioned in court several times. In previous episodes, we've talked about him and, as you said, the foster parents' fears about his attitude specifically towards William's case. Jubilant took the stand and told the court that when Cook took over homicide in late 2017, he approached Jubilant's desk, pointed at a picture of William, which was pinned up next to his desk, and said, no one cares about that little kid, get him off the books and get him to unsolved homicide. The Commissioner's legal team tried immediately to keep that claim from coming out, making a non-publication application, but later withdrew it after it was challenged by the media. The court heard that Mr Cook denied those allegations and then the New South Wales Police Commissioner, Mick Fuller, then issued a statement fully supporting Mr Cook. Yes, Mr Cook denies ever saying what Jubilant alleges that he said and the prosecution accused Jubilant of lying about that during their cross-examination, suggesting he had made it up to advance his own agenda. Then William's foster mother took the stand to give evidence. What did she have to say? She took the stand in Jubilant's defence. She was called by Jubilant's defence team the following day after Jubilant made that claim about Scott Cook. And she told the court what she had previously told me for this podcast. She alleged that Scott Cook told her they were not the only families a victim of crime and William was not their only case. She also told the court that he said William's case would go to unsolved homicide after the inquest, despite the fact that it was and still is ongoing. 
And she told the court she was angry and she broke down in tears in the courtroom. And after her testimony was finished, Jubilant comforted her outside the courtroom as she was very upset with what had happened. You've had a very strong relationship, Leah, with the foster family. Have they spoken to you about how they're feeling, especially with all this new evidence tendered in court? I have spoken with uh, specifically William's foster mother quite a lot over the past couple of weeks. She was in court for Jubilant's hearing almost every day, supporting him and also being there as a representative for William. And she told me throughout the hearing how frustrating and upsetting it was that William was still being used as what she described as a pawn. She's spoken extensively on this podcast about her fears for the investigation and her criticism that police aren't focusing on what's important, which is finding William. And that fear and frustration has only grown with this whole ordeal. It was upsetting for her to watch all of these resources be put into prosecuting the lead detective on her son's case, to hear about all the internal politics and infighting that has stemmed from this investigation while he is still missing and... We understand the strike force looking for him has been severely diminished in the past year and the court heard they were already under-resourced before all of this started. They were struggling to keep up with all the information that had been gathered. She and her husband released a statement at the end of Jubilant's hearing criticising the police handling of the case and urging the coroner to take a closer look at Savage given that he's no longer an active suspect for the strike force. The foster parents released a statement. They chose not to address the media themselves so the statement was read by a family spokesperson who also runs the Where's William Tyrrell campaign. Deliver a statement on behalf of the foster family. It's now been more than five years and five months since William disappeared. During this time, there has been a small, incredibly dedicated group of police led by Gary Jubelin who have consistently demonstrated complete professionalism and integrity, with every single person focused solely on finding out what has happened to William, whilst trying to manoeuvre the internal politics going on behind the scenes. The team of dedicated police never lost sight of the fact that this was about a beautiful, happy, three-year-old little boy who may never have the chance to become the man he deserves to be. Despite the enormity of the investigation, public awareness and the $1 million reward, we still don't have answers and are now forced to rely on the coronial inquest to critically examine William's case in the search for answers. During the New South Wales police case against Gary Jubelin, when Magistrate Ross Hudson allowed critical information relating to William's investigation to become publicly known and paused proceedings to ask a police witness, has this information been provided to the coroner? The only word, no, concerns over the police's management of the information provided to the coroner raises a number of questions, including... Why did the then head of homicide, Mr Scott Cook, advise us that William's case had been directed to unsolved crimes when the inquest had only just begun? Why has the lead investigator with the greatest knowledge of the investigation not been called to give evidence? Why were senior police declaring it's a waste of time and it will never be solved prior to the outcome of the inquest? We hope that Ms Graham explores these and other serious questions in greater detail during tranche three. Overall, we hold grave concerns regarding the cavalier way in which police leadership have viewed William's abduction over the past two years, and we hold deep fears for those families coming behind us and question how they might trust senior police to put their personal agendas, ambitions and bias aside to focus on solving these horrendous crimes. There needs to be greater transparency and accountability within New South Wales Police, which can only be achieved through institutional change. 
Today, five years and five months on, we want to remind Australians that this is about a little boy called William Tyrrell. William is loved, he is missed every single day, and William needs to come home. Thank you. In that statement, a spokesperson for William's foster family referred to a Miss Graham. Miss Graham is the New South Wales Deputy State Coroner Harriet Graham, who is running the coronial inquest into William's disappearance. As part of the requirements for the coronial inquest, police this week conducted a new search of bushland near Kendall in northern New South Wales. It's an area where convicted pedophile Frank Abbott lived when William vanished. Police say it is not a breakthrough. The coronial inquest resumes next month. For Gary Jubilin, his court case has now concluded, with the magistrate set to hand down a decision on his guilt or innocence in April. Here's what Mr Jubilin had to say outside court as he awaits his fate. It was over 12 months ago that my life was turned upside down and it's been a frustrating year that I've had. Um, I'm happy that the court uh, hearing, I'm happy with the conduct of the hearing and most importantly that it was an open hearing so the full facts go out I'm putting my confidence in the court. I'd also like to say that uh, I have no animosity towards the New South Wales Police. I respect the work that individual officers, men and women do carry out. It's a tough job. I fully understand that. I do have issues with uh, people within the uh, police force that put personal ambition above their duties. It's a very simple role that we do in the police. We're public servants. As the name implies, we're there to serve the public and uh, it's not that hard to do. That should be the motivation of the police. I stand here and my frustration is the fact that uh, we still don't know what happened to William Tyrrell. And I look at the resources that have been put in to prosecute me and I just can't help but think that would have been better if those resources were put into finding out what happened to William. I'm not going to say anything more. I put my faith in the court system. I have my whole career and I'll uh, continue to do so. Thank you very much. So still a lot of unanswered questions here, Leah. What happens next? The next part of the coronial inquest into William's disappearance resumes in March. So it will be interesting to see what the coroner does now that this information is public. It wasn't previously public. It's not known how much of this information she already knew before this hearing. And it's not known whether Jubilin will give evidence at the coronial inquest, whether Savage will again testify at the coronial inquest. But in terms of what the foster family has called for the coroner to do, it is up to the coroner whether she makes any recommendations at the end of this inquest and what those recommendations will be. The coronial inquest into the disappearance of William Tyrrell resumes in March. We will have new episodes as the developments continue. For more details about the information in this episode and to see some of the exhibits that we've referenced, go to 10daily.com.au. Where's William Tyrrell? Is written and presented by Leah Harris and Natasha Belling. Edited and produced by Stuart Buckland. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of William Tyrrell that can help the police investigation, please contact them. 
This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.